The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone, and welcome to our throwback episode. In our throwback episodes, we are reintroducing you to some of our most popular episodes. This is great for new listeners who want to learn more about the work we've done in the past, and it's a great refresher if you've been a listener for a long time. Enjoy. Before we start this episode, I have a little bit of a challenge for you. As you listen to this episode, I want you to try to find a golden nugget that you can focus on. I've talked to Jen for probably about 45 minutes in, in, in strategizing this interview, so I know there are going to be some great nuggets of wisdom here, but I want you to purposely look out for something that you can use in your everyday life, and if you find that thing, write a five-star review. You don't even need to write anything. Just put, give us a little five stars just to let other people know that the content is solid on the podcast. And now. Let's jump into the interview. Jen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited about this. But before we get into it, how about you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, I'm the CEO and founder of Alignment Strategies Group. We are a boutique consulting firm based in New York, and we help CEOs and their senior teams to optimize the health and growth of their organizations. And what that means is that when people are facing complexity, conflict, change, either coming from outside their organization because their field is changing or coming from inside their organization because the complexity is growing as the organization grows, we help them to free themselves from conflict and achieve optimal outcomes. Fantastic. And you have a great book coming out. Can you tell the audience about that? Yes. The book is called Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. And it is all about how to not just resolve conflict when that's not working, but instead how to free yourself from persistent or recurring cycles of conflict at work, at home, and in the world. And so can you tell us a bit about your inspiration for the book? Yes. Well, I can talk about my professional inspiration, and then I can also tell you about how I grew up and you know the, the kind of deeper inspiration. But my professional career started at the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School 25 years ago, where I worked with the greats in the field like Roger Fisher and Bruce Patton, Doug Stone and Sheila Heen. And I was a facilitator and a teaching assistant and on faculty, really, and taught the getting to yes and difficult conversations methodologies for many, many years, and then decided I wanted to go back to study intractable conflict. Because what I saw was that I and my colleagues were being incredibly helpful to people all around the world, mostly in business settings, but really in nonprofits and in academia as well. And we saw we were able to be helpful. And there were some times that our methods didn't work, that sometimes conflict came back again and again, no matter how many times people used win-win methodologies. And my question was, why is that? And what can we do about it? So I went to go study with Mort Deutsch at the Program in Social Organizational Psychology at Teachers College at Columbia University. And in that process, my entire graduate career was funded by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. So I got to Columbia 
in 2002, the year after the 9-11 attacks in New York. And uh, the Department of Homeland Security had just started a new grant that was like a National Science Foundation grant. And so they ended up funding all five years of my research where I looked at humiliation and the role that the emotion of humiliation plays in exacerbating long-term conflicts as applied to terrorism. And I now have taught a course on conflict freedom for the last decade at Columbia to graduate students all about how to free yourself from conflict when conflict resolution fails. Yeah, that's a really impressive background. And as um, somebody who's deep into this, the world of negotiation and dispute resolution, I find your approach really refreshing and unique. And before we get into those three things that we're going to talk about today, I want you to give the audience an idea of what you mean by freeing yourself from conflict, because that approach is a really unique and helpful contribution to the, uh, to the literature that's out there. Thank you. What I mean by conflict freedom, we first have to talk about, well, what does it look like to get stuck in conflict? And from all of my research, and really from the 40 years of conflict research that has led to win-win methodologies and collaborative negotiation styles taking the forefront, is that we need to take a step back and say, well, how do we get stuck? So one of the primary ways we get stuck in conflict is that we have what I call four primary conflict habits. And we use these habits with the best of intentions. But when we use them habitually, for example, we blame other people, or we blame ourselves, or we avoid conflict, we shut down in the face of conflict habitually, or we even relentlessly seek to collaborate with other people who are not interested in collaborating or cooperating with us. And so when we use those habits, we get stuck in a pattern with other people's conflict habits. And those habits form a pattern of interaction that makes a cycle very difficult to break. So the way that we can free ourselves from recurring conflicts is to actually do something different, something pattern breaking, something that will break the pattern that we've been in. So for example, if we're in a pattern where I blame you and then you blame me back, and we're basically blaming and attacking one another, one way to break that pattern is for one of us to free ourselves from that cycle by doing something different. In some ways, it almost doesn't matter what you do, as long as what you do is constructive and different from what you've been doing. You could make a joke, you could avoid, right? If you, <laughs> if you, if you took a pause, so I don't necessarily advocate going from one of these habits to the other as a way to break the pattern, but you could. But ideally, really what the whole methodology of optimal outcomes is all about is taking a step back, noticing the pattern that you've gotten stuck in with someone or many other people, and then asking yourself, what is something pattern breaking that I could do that would free me and therefore obviously the other person or people involved as well from this entrenched pattern? I love it. And I know for me, my, my habit is being relentlessly geared towards having the conversation and moving in the direction of productive dialogue. And I recognize that with some circumstances or some people, they don't appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work out. And I think one of the things is that there's an assumption, especially with the way that conflict resolution literature is, is written right now, is that being proactive, having the conversation is the, quote, right way to do it. And 
for me, the, the really revolutionary thing about your approach is it causes us to take a step back and question our, our assumptions, number one, and recognize the patterns that we're in and that there, there are alternatives. And I think that's a really, really great approach. Thank you. That really is the point. And it's not surprising that that's how you would either diagnose yourself or maybe you took the assessment online. People can go to optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment, and they can also assess which one of these four habits they tend to use primarily. But so it doesn't surprise me because the people, types of professions that tend to fall into this relentlessly collaborate habit are people in talent management, human resources, and also people who've been trained like you and I have to that collaboration is where it's at and that we must collaborate with other people in order to produce win-win solutions. You know, really on the international stage, Israel-Palestine is an issue that I care deeply about. And back in 1994, 95, when I was still in college, I remember watching diplomats trying to bring peace to that region using classic win-win methodologies, and the whole thing just blew up. I mean, quite literally. And it was partially from, and I wrote papers on that for my conflict resolution course that I took in college. And I remember, you know, that was really in some ways part of the beginning of, of my journey of saying, if even the diplomats who are trained in this stuff, if it doesn't work for them, you know, then there has to be something here about sometimes it just doesn't work. Sometimes that win-win methodology just doesn't work and we need to figure out what we can do instead. Well, let's get into the three things that we're going to discuss today. So let's start off with number one, using conflict mapping to map out complex conflict. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I can. So when we're stuck in conflict, it's typically because the situation that we're facing is more complex than we are giving it credit for. And so, and part of the reason why we as human beings tend to simplify very complex situations is that particularly when we're stuck in conflict, we get into that fight or flight mode and that can help us. So if a tiger is chasing you, it can be very helpful to narrow your focus. You're focusing on that tiger and you're figuring out how can I get away from this tiger? The problem is when we're stuck in complex conflict situations that are recurring, they're happening over and over again, no matter how many times we've tried to resolve them, that's really like the antithesis of a tiger chasing you. That is is a complex situation that's happening over a long period of time, not in just a matter of moments. And so what we do is that we, we tend to, unfortunately, we tend to look at these situations in black and white terms. It's me and it's you. It's I'm right, you're wrong, you're to blame, I'm, you know, I'm clear. And those 
points of view tend not to be so helpful in, in terms of helping us free ourselves from these situations. They tend to get us more stuck, more entrenched. So doing something to help us see the situation in a more complex way tends to be more helpful. Conflict mapping is a great way to see a situation in more complex terms. And what it means is very simple. It doesn't take more than a few minutes of your time. So what I always encourage people to do is either on a screen or on a blank piece of paper, put down the names of the people just as a way to begin. Put down the names of the people who you can who are obviously involved in the situation. And then what you need to do is put down at least one, ideally many more, names of people who are not necessarily obviously involved in the situation, but when you take a moment to think about it, you would say, yes, those people either are impacted by the situation or are impacting the situation. So just to give you a quick example, I was working with a client of mine who was so angry. He was in a protracted conflict with the head of sales. He is the CEO of a large design firm and his head of sales. He was just so, so angry at her. They had had a blow up the day before I was I was coaching him and I came in and he had told me that things had just blown up between them. And he's calling her greedy. She's so greedy. And I'm like, what is going on? He is just clearly so upset. So in that moment, it seemed like the situation between him and his head of sales was just about the two of them. But I asked him, who else is involved here? And he was able to say, oh, actually, the sales team because they're aware. They saw us screaming at each other. So the whole sales team was in the office when she and I were yelling at each other. So they're involved. And then the CFO and the rest of the exec team, because they're aware how angry I am at her and how greedy she is. And they're trying to get me to tell her that her compensation package doesn't work. And so he starts to see a little bit more complexity here. And then I pushed him and I said, so who else is involved here? What other factors might be involved? Think about not only today, but also over time. And then he thinks to himself, well, you know, my thoughts on leadership are impacted by the way my father was an entrepreneur and the way my brother has been so successful. And I've always wanted to be as successful as my father and my brother. So I'm going to put the way that I was raised and my relationships with my father and my brother on my map. Oh, and what about her? What about your head of sales? How did she grow up? What kind of leadership lessons might she have learned? What, what has she learned about finance and money that might be impacting how you're perceiving her to be acting? And so he put the way she grew up, she grew up in a very poor family with not a lot of money. And so suddenly a situation that seemed like just the two of them yelling, yelling at each other is much more nuanced, a little more complex. And that can help us see opportunities to leverage change in the situation that we could not have seen had we not mapped out the conflict in that way. I really like this approach for a number of reasons. And the first reason is going to uh, probably going to be a bit of foreshadowing because we talk about emotions in, in the third topic. But when you talk about interpretation of situations, one of the great things I heard Brene Brown say in one of her many books <laughs> was, our emotions get the first shot of interpretation. So when we're thinking, especially when we're, we're threatened by these uh, situations of conflict, we're not going to initially think about it in a thorough, nuanced, high-level, logical way. We're going to think about it with our gut 
emotions. And when we have an emotional response, usually it creates tunnel vision. We're going to be focused on what we perceive the threat to be. And in those situations, it's since it's not a deep analysis, it's going to be, like you said, a, a very simplistic understanding of the conflict of the situation. Because in addition to helping us process things quickly, it also makes us feel safer. Because if we feel like we understand the situation, we feel safer. But with this conflict mapping uh, approach that you're, you're talking about, what it forces us to do is expand our perspective. So we're not just looking at it from the narrow focus. We're looking at it from an elevated perspective so we can see the whole picture. And uh, yeah, it makes the situation a lot more complex. But like you said, it gives us a deeper understanding, which allows us to create strategies that might be more effective to solving the problem. That's right. And one thing I want to add to this is that it not only helps us see the situation in a more complex way, it can also help us see the situation in a much more clear way. Something you just said reminded me of this piece of it, which is, which I also write about in the book, which is in a situation that is so overwhelming that people are just overwhelmed by the complexity. So in that case, sometimes it's not just that you're seeing it as this in these black and white terms, but that you know you're stuck in a situation and you, know, you suspect one of the reasons you're stuck is that it's just so overwhelmingly complex, you don't even know where to begin. So I was just having a conversation with a client of mine the other day where he was really struggling with, he's actually a consultant to a business where the CEO of the business is in a major conflict with the board. And what, we, what I helped him see by doing the conflict mapping, and again, this didn't take, I mean, he didn't do more than about three minutes of conflict mapping for him to get to this aha moment, was he and the CEO and the board were all so focused on the part of the situation that was the relationship between the board as a whole and the CEO. And it was like they were framing the situation as it's the CEO versus the board. The board wants the CEO to step down and do something a certain different way. And the CEO is digging in his heels and doesn't want to do it. And he's a founder and he's not going to budge. And, you know, there, and some members of the board are afraid that he's going to walk away. And, you know, so there's a lot of conflict going on. But what the mapping was able to help my client do was to see that there was internal conflict on the board and that there was no way the board was going to be able to, quote unquote, get the CEO to do anything until the board itself could reconcile the various different perspectives on the board. Now, as I say that to you, it may even sound so obvious that, oh, of course, that's what the board needs to do. But when you are entrenched, even this consultant had been hired to help in this situation, but he himself had gotten so entrenched that it was really hard for any of them to notice that they needed to take care of the relationships, the perspective, the differing perspectives on the board before they even tried to, you know, send any kind of messages whatsoever to the CEO directly. So that that's one of the powers here is that it can help you, mapping can help you focus on different parts of your map once you create that map. That's great. Yes. So listeners, note, <laughs> make sure when you're preparing for your negotiations, you include this conflict mapping. And also, too, if you haven't yet, download the uh, negotiation preparation guides we have on the website that'll help you prepare. And now after this conversation, I feel like I need to put <laughs> some conflict mapping 
information on those guides too, because mm. this is really, really powerful. So Kwame, what people can do is they can go on optimaloutcomesbook.com slash map, and they can actually either download software, which is available to you at that site, or print out a paper-based space to create your map. And there are instructions on exactly how to create your map with lots of different steps to it, but it's relatively simple. And again, it can only take five minutes or you could have a lot of fun with it and you know spend more time on it. So you can do that either as a web-based tool or paper-based. And that's at optimaloutcomesbook.com. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's definitely something listeners you should do. And that's something that I'm going to play around with <laughs> too. So thank you for that resource. I appreciate it. And let's move on to the second point. So the second point is how to identify not only your ideal values, but also your shadow values. This is really interesting. Can you tell us more about this one? Yeah. So we all have ideal values and shadow values. And what I mean by ideal values, it's those things that we care about, that we're proud to say we care about. Things like leadership or customer service or the customer's always first. Those are some examples on the organizational side. On the individual side, our ideal values might be things like adventure or spirituality or healthy living. These are things that we say we care about and that we are proud to say we care about. These are in contrast to what I call shadow values, which are things that we care about that we're not typically proud to say we care about. And the key here is that we not only don't admit these to other people, we often don't admit our shadow values to ourselves. We push them down into the shadow of our consciousness and we pretend that they're not there. The problem is that these shadow values are there and that they often ooze out and drive conflicts with other people. So let me give you an example of what I mean. Oh, and I can give you first some examples of typical shadow values. Things like caring about status or recognition or financial security. So if we go back to the example that I was talking about before about the CEO and his head of sales and he was calling her greedy, when I asked him to identify what were some of his ideal values and shadow values, he thought about it and he realized that he outwardly to the world says he cares about collaboration and leadership and entrepreneurialism and risk-taking. And yet inside of himself, pushed down in the shadow were values like authority and financial security, things that he wasn't very proud of, but he, because he had pushed down his own need for authority, he had not been able to say directly to the head of sales what it was that he really felt and what it was he really needed to say, which was, we need to lower your compensation package. Here are the reasons why the business needs the money elsewhere. You've been being paid way above market rates. Instead, he kind of beat around the bush and brought it up in these informal ways on street corners and in the office in front of other people. And that led the head of sales to just, you know, be beside herself. She couldn't believe that he was bringing these things up in these informal, inappropriate ways. And so it was only when this CEO was able to acknowledge and honor his own 
value on authority that look, he's the CEO of this company. And at some point he's got the authority. He needs to be able to make decisions and let people know decisions are being made. He of course can ask for input, but he had such a, a strong value, ideal value of collaboration that it was running the show and actually making things harder for him. And that, you know, the collaboration ideal value and his shadow value of authority were really in tension with one another. So the goal of this work is to enable you people to honor that shadow value. It's there anyway, right? So us pretending that it doesn't exist doesn't make it go away. It just makes it ooze out in ways that are typically not very helpful. So the, the, the work is really to honor it and see how can I in my actions, in my thoughts, or in my words, and it doesn't have to be all three, it could be just in my thoughts, I'm honoring, wow, you know, I need to hold my authority here. And what would that look like for me? What would my, how would my conversation be different with this head of sales if I were honoring my own authority? I really like this point. And it kind of speaks to the, the internal negotiation that we need to have before we have these difficult conversations. Because if we're not clear on what it is that we value and we care about, then we're going to be ineffective in these conversations, even if we get exactly what we want out of the conversation. So for example, if there's a situation where deep down inside you have, a, for instance, a shadow value, but it's in conflict with the ideal value that you have on the surface and you only negotiate for that ideal value, you're still going to be dissatisfied with the outcome Yes, because that, that shadow value hasn't been honored. And I That's really right. like that. That's exactly right. The other way that shadow values are incredibly helpful is that we don't even need to know what other people's shadow values are. And of course, since most of the time, people don't know what their shadow values are, they've been pushing them down, they're not aware of them. So it can be almost impossible to know for sure what someone else's shadow value is because you can't really ask them, right? Unless you have an incredibly close relationship and are able to teach them the methodology. But the point is, you don't need to know for sure what someone else's shadow value is in order for this concept to be helpful to you because and to free you from conflict. Because the point of it is you can take your best guess at what might be underlying someone else's inexplicable or incredibly difficult behavior. And just the act of you getting curious and wondering what their shadow value might be typically raises your empathy for them in such a way that it takes away the energy, it takes away the power that's been driving this conflict and keeping you stuck. So again, to go back to this example, when the CEO, when I asked him, why do you think she's being so greedy? Like, what is it? Why are you, you know, pointing your finger at her and saying she's so greedy? What could be going on for her? He immediately remembered stories. And this, of course, gets back to the mapping where he mapped out how she had grown up. He immediately remembered stories that she had told him about how she grew up as a kid with not enough heat, not enough food, very poor family. And he realized she was probably worried about her own financial security, even though he knew he had been paying her for many years way above market prices and that she was doing perfectly fine financially, that he could understand now there was a shadow value driving her. She wasn't even willing or able to talk about it herself. She was worried she would not have enough, even though that wasn't justified in his mind because of how much money she actually was making today, he could acknowledge that she wasn't proud of it, but she was still fearful. 
And it was in that moment when he understood that, it didn't take away his frustration with how she had behaved. It didn't make it go away, but it did raise his empathy for why. It did at least help explain why she would behave the way she was. And so the energy that he had had of pointing his finger at her and why can't she just stop being so greedy, that fell away. And he was able, and, and when that emotional charge falls away, there's a lot more opportunity to see, well, what else can we do? How can we become free from the situation? This is great. And you know, this point that you just made segues perfectly into the third point, which is how to use your emotions in your favor to free yourself from conflict. So let's just dig deep into that right now. Yes. Well, I'll, the first piece of using your emotions in your favor is to focus on your own emotions because that's where you have the most leverage. I think in the negotiation and conflict resolution worlds, we've seen so much effort placed on trying to figure out what other people are feeling and how we can speak and act in ways that are going to help them not get angry or not get aggressive or not blow up at us, right? And the first point of this work in Optimal Outcomes is about putting the focus back on ourselves and acknowledging we have a lot more leverage over and control over how we respond in a conflict situation than we do over how other people respond. And that's because the ways that we all as humans respond emotionally are so grounded in how we grew up, in how we learned what was okay to experience and not experience emotionally, what was okay to express and not express emotionally. I talk about three emotion traps, which also you can find online at optimalbookbook.com and you can take an assessment to identify which of these emotion traps do you tend to fall into. So we grow up being conditioned to respond emotionally in certain ways. And so the idea that I'm going to be in conflict with you and I'm going to be able to acknowledge, you know, respect you in a new way or acknowledge the work you've done on the team and then all of a sudden you're not going to be angry anymore, that can be helpful. And I've seen that be incredibly helpful to many of my clients and students when they realize that they've been, you know, not honoring someone's shadow value. And then once they do, the person may feel recognized and kind of calm down. And, and that, that's great, but it's not the full picture because there's so much more that we can do for ourselves. So the first piece of this work about emotions is simply to acknowledge that the work can start, should start, I believe, internally with our own selves, noticing what, is, what are my emotion triggers? How do I tend to respond when I'm faced with recurring conflicts? And then work with that. So first of all, there are these three emotion traps that have to do with how do we both experience our own emotions and then how do we express them, if at all. So for many of us, we experience our emotions in very intense ways. If we're angry, if we're joyful, it's intense. And similarly, how do we express those emotions? We express them by pointing them outwards towards other people. So if we're happy or joyful, we will smile, we might get up and dance, we might get up and sing. And also if we're angry, it might come out as yelling or screaming or even physically being violent. And so I call that the knee-jerk reaction. Then there's inaccessible emotions, which is in some ways the opposite, where people have a lot of trouble identifying even what am I feeling and also typically don't 
show their emotions, don't express their emotions towards other people. And then combination of the two is we might experience our emotions inside of ourselves very intensely, but been, but we've been taught that we are not, it's not okay to express those emotions. So that's a situation where the emotions might ooze out anyway, and other people are picking up on what we're feeling and we don't want them to be, and that can cause conflict itself. So each one of these three ways of experiencing and expressing our emotions can get us stuck in traps. And there's a fourth way, which I call the constructive way of dealing with our emotions. And that involves simply pausing when we notice we're experiencing emotions or even pausing to ask ourselves, what are we feeling when nothing else is happening in the environment, but we're just simply pausing, right? We're not stuck in conflict in the moment, but we're taking a moment to pause. So nowadays, so many people have a yoga practice or a mindfulness practice. So as part of that practice, I encourage people to just ask the question, how am I feeling? What am I feeling right now? And to see if you can name the emotions. So that's the first piece is just pause and ask yourself, can I name what I'm feeling? And there are lots of different ways to do that. The second piece is to ask, what message are my emotions sending me? Typically, anger the message is, there's something not right here. Something's unfair. Something's unjust. Sadness is typically saying there's been a loss. A loss has occurred, and then there may be constructive ways to deal with that loss, which we'll talk about in a moment. Fear, danger ahead. That's the message. There's danger, either real or perceived. So really important to listen to that message. And then the next piece is, what is a constructive response that I could take in the outside world given those messages. So if there's something not right, something unjust, what constructive action could I take to make a difference and right that wrong or make that injustice more just? And that's when we think about, I think about people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi and Mandela, Rosa Parks, people who were able to take their anger. It's not that they didn't feel anger, but they took their anger and they listened to what message it was sending them and then they took constructive action and they, of course, encouraged other people to take constructive action as well. And that's the key. This is great. And I, I really what it comes down to, first of all, is self-awareness. Yes. One of the things that uh, I talk about in, in the presentations when it comes to emotion management is, like you said, we have to acknowledge the emotions of the other side, but also when it comes to understanding our emotions and wrestling with those and controlling them in a productive way, we need to understand and acknowledge our emotions. And, and labeling the emotions is a powerful way to do it. And so the first one, when it comes to self-awareness, if you're, if you're traveling somewhere and you know where you want to go, an important part of that process is not just knowing where you want to go, but knowing where you currently are <laughs> as well. And yeah. a lot of times when it comes to these emotions, we don't know where we are. And then psychologically, the, the magic of actually taking the time to label the emotions, giving it a name, is the fact that it activates the part of the brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And so without going too, too deep into uh, my psychology degree, <laughs> that mm -hmm. all you need to know is that's in the frontal lobe. That's where logical thinking happens. There's an antagonistic relationship between the frontal lobe and the amygdala where the emotions are, are found. And so by taking the time to label the emotion, what you're doing is you're activating that part of the brain, which starts to quiet the amygdala, which means that it's going to have less of an impact, less of a negative impact on you during the conversation. Yes, great. And you know, another way that's perhaps less scientific, but 
and more in the pop culture is people love this when I talk about the film Inside Out. And in fact, the chapter in the book starts with a description of the five characters in Inside Out, which Dr. Paul Ekman, who is a renowned psychologist, creators of that film consulted him because he had done so much work on the universal emotions and these five emotions of anger, joy, sadness, jealousy, and fear are given actual persona, you know, they're personified in that film. And so they have a way that they look, they have a sound to them, they have a voice, they may even have a smell to them, they have a way that they would feel if you touch them. And so we can think about our emotions also, if it's helpful to people to, to think about your emotions in that way, that they are actually personified aspects of who you are, and that they all exist all the time inside of you. But some of them come up and you know they kind of express themselves and then they go back down. I think another really important and interesting thing to remember about emotions is that they are like the weather. They come and they go, right? I once went on a backpacking trip in the White Mountains of New Hampshire for four days. And my only purpose, it was actually in the middle of when I was writing this chapter on emotions for the book. And I just, my whole purpose for the four days was just to notice my emotions coming and going. And it really was amazing how, especially I was in the mountains and the weather just kept on changing and there was a lot of rain and you know, then the sun would come out. And I just noticed how without my doing anything, the sadness would come as I would think about people in my family who had passed away. And then it would move into disgust when I would, you know, my boots would sink into the mud and then it would go back to joy when I was, I would reach the peak of a mountain and, you know, these things would just come, come and go. And so sometimes it can be helpful just to settle, just to let them be what they are and let them settle. This is great. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.